This is a Lip Media Podcast. Deviant women, deviant women, deviant women, deviant women, deviant women. And welcome to Deviant Women, the podcast where we talk to you about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. My name is Lauren. I'm Alicia. Welcome to the show. We are actually coming to you from the same room for the first time in quite a long time. A long, yeah. Since oh, March? Yeah. Eight, February, maybe? God, I can't even remember. It's been a while. But we're actually in the mm. same room. We should say that we are allowed to be in the same yes. room. Like we acknowledge that the pandemic is still very much alive in other parts of the world, but we are in a very fortunate position here in South Australia in that we have zero active cases and have had zero active cases for a long time. And so lockdown, it's packing itself up. We still have some restrictions, but we are allowed to have people around us a little bit more than we used to. That's right. And Safely. Yeah, but how about my face that I'm pulling that is like the don't jinx it face. <laughs> don't jinx it. Yeah. But hopefully everyone else out there is doing all right wherever they are. Mm. And what are we doing this week? Well, actually... On a similar note, I was kind of inspired to do this week's episode because I'm really excited about the fact that, well, with the slowly unlocking uh, lockdown, uh, stage three, is that what we're up to? Stage three of the unlocking of, you know, the undoing of lockdown. (laughs) So we're undoing lockdown in small stages and stage three has just begun, which means we're now allowed to return to dance classes. And so a week after this episode lands, I will be at my first community swing dance since, again, since March. Wow. And I'm actually feeling really excited about it. That is exciting. Although it'll probably just still be Brendan and myself dancing with each other and nobody else. Because yeah, don't swap partners. Don't, don't want to swap do partners yet. No. Not really quite ready, perhaps, yep. for that. But yep. I'm excited to get back on the dance floor. And so the figure of today's episode is the queen of swing, one Miss Norma Miller. Hooray! Hey, I just thought something then, because you were just saying about how you won't be swapping partners at swing, which is, which, yeah, I, well. Yeah, yeah actually, that does, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it kind that of defeats the purpose of swinging, doesn't is it? That, is that why swingers are called swingers? Who knows? I Who don't knows? know. It's a good question. I mean, that's a different kind of swing. I yeah. should clarify. But that's not what Lauren means. No, I'm no. talking about swing dancing. I'm talking about the Lindy Hop. I'm talking about shag. Well, shag is another. Yes, it's very euphemistic oh dance. It is, isn't it? Mm. Oh, Juicy knees. Lindy hop into another bed. Yeah, that's right. Sorry, my juicy knees references. (laughs) Juicy Juicy knees. knees. Anyway. Charleston is a sexy dance. Yes. (laughs) So not. It's so not a sexy dance. Well, sexy. There's so much leg on show. Those ankles. Come on. Those skirts were the shortest they'd ever been. That is true. That is true. So we are, obviously, we're going to the swing time. Mm. 
We've, um, we've been here before. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to assume we're do- going to some um, familiar <laughs> territory. I'm just going to take a stab in the dark and say we're going to the US of A. We are going to the US of A. We're going specifically to Harlem. And Harlem at this time is a really amazing place because we are going to enter into the Harlem Renaissance. And you know that when anything gets the name Renaissance, it is because there's an influx of art and music and culture and lots of exciting things happening. And I would say that the Harlem Renaissance, and look, this is totally my subjective opinion. I I don't have a lot of basis for this. Sure. (laughs) But I would venture an educated guess that the Harlem Renaissance has significantly contributed to a lot of mainstream American culture, which has Mm. then had waves into much of Western culture. It's had huge influences in a lot of Australian pop culture uh, in terms of, yeah, the music that came out of that, the poetry. I mean, like the jazz poetry, Langston Hughes's jazz poetry Mm. is essentially kind of where a lot of hip hop, you know, started, where beat poetry began, which made its way into something that we are very involved with, Mm. which is the spoken word poetry scene. So there's ripple effects that come out of the Harlem Renaissance that are still hugely influential for us today. Excellent. It's an exciting time. Well, I look forward to learning all about it in today's episode. Did you know much about Norma Miller before? No, not, not really anything. I mean, when you told me the name involved with Swing, that was about as far as I could connect things. Okay. And like, okay, yes. <laughs> Swing dancer. And that's about as much as I've got. So I am going to say quite, I'm going to do quite a bit of name dropping in this episode. So it's going to be on you, Alicia. It's your responsibility to pull me up when there's names that you don't know because, mm. okay, you know, just because I, I don't think, know which well, are household no names and which ones are just names oh, okay. because I'm familiar with them. Yeah, sure. All right. Um, okay. All right. That's okay. your. Okay. I like your. Okay. 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 All right. Well, let's talk about Norma Miller. So, obviously, if we're going back to the jazz time, we're actually going to start in the early 1900s with Norma's mother, Zalama Baker, who came from Barbados to New York in 1915, just 15 years old. So, she was joining her sister, Gwendolyn, who had moved there before and got a job, which was a very important thing. So she moved into this brownstone house in Brooklyn with a bunch of other immigrants and they would go out and do housework for white people, of course. And they actually shared a room on a rotating basis. So this was something that was really common because they would go and live in the houses of the people they worked for Mm. six days a week and then they'd have their day off and that's when they would actually live at home. Which seems strange, but apparently this was quite normal. But it does seem a little bit inconvenient to me. (laughs) So while the reality of her new life away from her mother and the beach that she grew up on sort of scrubbed away any semblance that she had of the American dream, Zalma, or Alma, as she went by. Oh, uh, really? Why? I like Zalma. That's a great name. Apparently it was actually when she came in through, what's that part where they register in New York? Like immigration? Uh, Oh, the the island. The island. What's the island? Island? One of them. You know, the one. So we're Australian. They just wrote her name down wrong. And Ah. so she just went with Alma. That happened to everyone. Yeah. That's pretty much the history of everybody's <laughs> yeah. names getting changed. I think yeah. especially, yeah, because of being yeah. an immigrant and, like... Yeah. And the white person sitting there yeah, writing I'm your going, name I don't like, actually care yeah. enough to write this down properly. It sounded like that to yeah. me, so I'm going to write it down. Yeah. Great. So in the Ida B. Wells episode, just two episodes prior, 
I touched on the fact that Ida and a few of her fellow activists were proponents of the Great Migration. Okay? Yes, yes. Yep, okay. Remember, so this is where they encouraged other black folk to move away from the south to the north, where not only were the conditions better, but they could make this sort of really heavily felt economic impact. Mm, mm-hmm by taking their money with them. And so Harlem became this real hotspot for black migrants. So rent was cheap because there was this huge property boom in Manhattan and landlords needed tenants. And so by the 1920s, there were some 300,000 African-American families who'd made it their home. Um, So both people from the South and there was a huge influx of migrants from the Caribbean Mm -hmm. at the same time. And so Alma, she finds herself at the Sons and Daughters of Barbados dance. And at this dance, she was approached by a handsome young man. Oh, that romance is blossoming. And he introduced himself as, would you like to take one guess at his name? Zalmay. Zalmay, really? Hi, Zalma. Zalmay. Her name is, his name was Norman Miller. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I right. thought that, that was makes, gonna be. That makes much more I th- sense. I thought that was going to yeah. be an easy one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. That. Yeah. All right. I'll let you. You've had a long day. Look, I have had a very long day. <laughs> I've had a long, unproductive, annoying day where nothing <laughs> went my way. So let's just keep okay. rolling. Let's just keep, we'll keep rolling. rolling. Okay. So, well, at the dance, they locked eyes. They liked one another. Classic. But you see. Alma's oh, no. sister. What? But I didn't really like. Oh no, I don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do care. It just yeah. sounded like there was going to be something in the way. Okay, there's a little minor thing in the way. Okay. okay, but you see, Alma's sister was a bit of a wallflower, and so this handsome man approached, but her sister was like, oh, and so Alma's like, I'm going to take care of her, whatever. Okay. Oh yeah, can't leave you to go off with. Yeah. Zalmay. Yeah. And Norman. (laughs) Norman. Uh, However, she went back and he was there again. They returned. This tall, handsome, sharply dressed Norman. He was dancing away. Their eyes locked. And this time she was like, you know what? Fuck you, Gwendolyn. (laughs) I'm going to dance. So they danced together that week and the next week (gasps) and the week after that. And I think I... And so on and so forth. Until one fateful night, Alma's sister decided that she wasn't going to go out to the dance. You see, she was too busy. She had all this stuff to do. And so Alma and Norman were alone (gasps) together. And perhaps it was the heat of the dance floor, their bodies pressed together. Maybe they were doing the foxtrot. Maybe they were doing the waltz. I don't know, making it up. But either (laughs) way, bodies pressed together. One thing led to another and... Well, a few weeks later, Alma, just 15 years old, let's remember, she found herself feeling a little bit under the weather. Oh, no. Now, I think that this is a great story, right? We're telling the story of Norma Miller here, right? She went on to be one of the most famous swing dancers of all time. What an amazing and epic origin story conceived from the intense heat and passion of all that illicit lust on the dance floor, a passion that imbued that unborn child through the very sweat on the floorboards, no? (laughs) Jesus, Lauren, where did that come from? I'm just saying it would be a good story. But that's not what happened. It's her sister Dorothy's story. Oh. (laughs) You see... This is not what? the birth of Norma. This is actually the conception of her sister, Dorothy. Well, why the hell do we need to know all of that? Because I thought it was a good story. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> parents met dancing. 
something. I'm sure there's something in the blood. That's what I'm trying to say. Oh, here. okay, something sure. In the well, blood. did Dorothy go on to dance? Um, no. no. But so <laughs> maybe it skipped a sibling. Okay. Well, a few years later, because you see Norman, he was signed up for the war because it's the oh, Great yeah. War is mm-hmm. happening. So he went off to war. Uh, so it was actually a couple of years later when he came back, and they finally had little Norma Miller, who was born on December second, nineteen nineteen, in. Harlem. Hooray. We got there. I'm, I'm so pleased. I thought it was a good story, but you yeah. don't look impressed. That, no, that's all right. I'm glad we took the roundabout way of getting there. <laughs> no, so unfortunately, while her father did survive the war, he didn't survive the damp of the shipyards, which is Ooh. where he got work just after he came home. And so he died of pneumonia just a week or so before Norma was born. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's tragic. Well, it is because now Alma is a single mother with two small mm. children, But luckily, both of her sisters now lived in New York, and so she did have a support system around her. Mm. But this was the 1920s, okay? There is a depression that is looming on the horizon, and things aren't easy. No. So at the same time, though, this is, well, the beginning of the Harlem Renaissance, and that is going to bring with it a lot of social change. So we have discussed the Jazz Age a lot on this podcast. Yes, we have, yes. So we won't go into all the details of the glitteriness of the and how how much we both love the jazz age. But what I will say is just a little bit about the Harlem Renaissance because this is a particularly important mm. sort of social movement of the time. So as I said, there's this huge influx of migrants to Harlem from all over from around the year 1918. So, you know, just after the war, just before Norma's born, through to the mid-1930s. This is the peak of the Harlem Renaissance. So this explosion of art and music and culture, a lot of new black-owned businesses, newspapers, like fashion, nightclubs, cabarets. Mm. So it's also an economic boom. People are taking, you know, agency for themselves. They have Mm. self-autonomy. It's this whole community. And this is why Alma thought that this was paradise. This is Mm. why she wanted to move to Harlem because she saw it as this is just where this whole black owned black run community where culture was just flourishing and thriving and it was really the place to be and it was led by figures like Langston Hughes who is a poet among many other things who's as I said his jazz poetry which is a type of poetry made up of jazz rhythms and improvisation uh, went on to influence the beats Mm. hip-hop and rap Um, and scat as well scat yes As well as writers like Nora Zeal Hurston, who we spoke briefly about in the Marie Laveau episode. And at the same time, there's obviously this new style of music, this particular form of jazz. So jazz did exist, particularly in the South. But what happened in Harlem was this new way of playing the piano. And they infused that with the traditional brass-led jazz of the South. And at the same time, music is becoming far more accessible to everybody because... People could afford to go to shows yes. and the cabaret. And we have discussed that before. And yeah. there's records. You yeah. can actually take music home with you. And so band leaders, composers, singers, they became a huge staple of Harlem. And really importantly, 
These artists were often the grandchildren and children of enslaved people, and they wanted to speak back to their experiences and at the same time, you know, create this new identity that was for them, one that was sophisticated and intellectual mm. and creative and turned those experiences of trauma and disillusionment into something of pride and self-determination. And this, again, what we saw kind of Ida B. Wells starting in the 19th century, that's sort of being carried over into this is the next generation that, yeah. are, that are following on from her. So let's come back to Norma, a little Norma. Let's do it. So Alma, <laughs> so let's go back to Norma. We got to we'll go Alma back to Alma. Alma, she used to host rent parties. We've discussed those before as well. Yeah, I was just going to say, have, do you know what a rent party is? When did we discuss rent parties? In the Bessie Smith episode. Oh, of course. Yeah. So, well, if you didn't listen to the Bessie Smith episode and you just need a very brief refresher, these are these parties that people would hold to raise money to pay their rent. And so you'd have people come over, you'd charge a fee, you'd put out some food, some drinks, musicians would come along and they often use this as a, a chance to experiment and test out new music. And so Alma, she charged 25 cents and she would sell homemade food and bootleg whiskey. And she was very good at befriending everybody Everyone who was, you know, newcomers to the area. And so punters would come along and they'd dance to Charleston in the living room. And Norma, of course, is just sitting there as this child mm -hmm. with these big white eyes yeah. watching on and soaking it all up. Yeah, for sure. And at the same time, she went to these church-sponsored summer camps where she would spend her time taking what she'd learnt, um, watching all of her, her mum's friends dancing at the rent parties, and she would, like, you know, create new routines with her friends. And they also took influences from films that they saw and all sorts of things. And then her family moved into an apartment, which was just across from the Cotton Club Ooh. Now, have you heard of the Cotton, the Cotton Club? Club? Yeah. This was a very famous dance slash jazz club, essentially, yeah. wasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And this is where Duke Ellington and his band were getting their start. And so Duke Ellington is a hugely important jazz musician. And the club went on to feature performers like Chick Webb, Count Bassie, Louis Armstrong, Ethel Waters, Cab Calloway, Bessie Smith, of hey. course, among many, many others. But... When the club first opened, though, around the same time that Norma lived across the road, the black performers, while they were the highlight and the major draw card for the club, the club itself was segregated. And so only white patrons could attend. And I also, just for a moment, Alicia, I want you to think about that name. Yes. Yeah. The Cotton Club, mm -hmm, yeah. right? So Ellington was asked to write jungle music. Dancers performed as and I say this mm -hmm. in inverted commas, in quotation marks, to perform as savages or plantation slaves. They were not allowed to mix with the clientele. And so while the club did give a big break to so many of these performers, it did so under these enormously racist conditions. Mm. However, Ellington himself, he composed over 100 songs at the club. So it did, it's one of those sort of yeah. double-edged swords where it gave all of these people... This opportunity, and it paid them well as yeah. well, I should say. Like the performers. I'm yeah. sure that not all of the dancers and not all of the, but the big, know, but waiters. But the big names made money out of it. Yeah. yeah. 
But this is, I mean, this is something that is a huge part of a lot of stories. And, I mean, even somebody like Josephine Baker, you know, like yeah. it is that idea of sort of playing into this very sort of exoticized idea mm. of African-American culture. Yeah. And, and we of, talked about this a lot in the Josephine Baker episode. sure did, absolutely. Yeah. And it was for a very specific audience that that's what they were expecting to receive in terms of their yeah. entertainment. Because the thing is, while Harlem was becoming this centre of culture, culture of course at the same time white people were like oh there's some cool stuff happening up in Harlem we should go and check it out mm. and so the you know white people basically came in and just took over yeah. and and like you were saying as well with the fact that you know records were this thing that of course you know the very well to do white middle class could afford mm. to buy and they mm. were buying more and more of that music yeah which is what led to so many of those labels then exploiting those musicians. That's right. For that exact purpose. Exactly. Mm. And so it is a really tricky Is it line. like you said, it's a double edged sword, like yeah. you said. Because it allows those artists to have an outlet and it allows those artists to make art. Yeah. But And it does eventually so someone like Duke Ellington, he was the person who eventually ended segregation at the Cotton Club because he put his foot down because he had gained enough popularity that he had the power mm. to be able to say to the owners of the club like no you have to end segregation or I will not play here anymore yeah. and of course if Duke Ellington says that to you you fucking do it because yeah. it's Duke Ellington so eventually these artists did get to a position where they were able to take back that agency and do something with it and we're going to see a little bit more of that in this story which I'm glad to say but yeah the first instance I think there was oh I can't remember the exact wording of the quote but it was something like Harlem in the daytime was for black people and at nighttime it was for white people Mm. because they'd just come in in their cars they would be the people patronizing all of the cabarets and the clubs And really another difficult thing that happened is, of course, in the Great Depression, when everybody lost their jobs, a lot of the black folk in Harlem then lost their jobs to white people, Mm. even people like doctors. So I read these stories of, you know, black doctors who were working in, you know, local hospitals and local medical centers being kicked out because the white doctors had lost their jobs in Manhattan. And this happened at all levels of society. And the same thing, there was this white takeover of a lot of the businesses. And so a lot of black folks lost, you know, their jobs. So it was this like, again, this double oppression when Mm. the Great Depression happened is it affected the black community so much worse because they were the dregs that were left at the end when, you know, like, oh, there's not enough jobs for everybody. So you have to give your job up too. Sorry about that. Yeah. 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 Mm. So this is what's happening (laughs) basically. Yeah. But for Norma, like she's not really aware of this. She's sitting out in a window watching through. She could see the performers in the Cotton Club Mm. and she's just soaking it up and learning. So as I said, when this sort of white takeover started to happen and, and the economic conditions became even worse was Alma was forced to move her family from this amazing apartment overlooking the Cotton Club. And so while Alma, you know, she was probably lamenting the family's misfortune, Norma didn't because Norma got a new window and Norma's new window looked out over something else. Oh, my goodness. The new window of their new apartment looked over the Savoy. Yes. Even fancier. Even fancier. So the Savoy. Let's talk about the Savoy. Cool. So we've contextualized the Cotton Club. 
Now let's get to the Savoy, because this is a different thing. Was the Savoy in Harlem? Yes, the Savoy was in Harlem. It was on Lenox Street between 140 and 141st Street, I think. It took up a whole city block. It was fucking massive. It doesn't exist anymore. I looked it up on Google Maps. It got bulldozed down for some apartments. Um, hey, that's what you do. Of course. <laughs> of course. But yeah, it was it was huge. The Savoy was a club. But it was more than just a club, okay? So this was an institution. And it was also the first, not just the first desegregated club in America, it was the first desegregated public place in the US. Really? Yes. It opened on March 12, 1926, and it was built for black people. It was not like the Cotton Club where, you know, people were being exploited and turned into these caricatures it was actually a club that was fully integrated from the day it opened its doors yeah, right. and that's something that norma says like there was one set of doors and everybody went through them yeah so it was owned by this business guy you know in inverted <laughs> commas uh mo gale and uh, his bodyguards who were paid an extraordinary hundred dollars a night which mm. is fuck ton of money in 1926. There's not enough people called Mo anymore. <laughs> yeah, just wanted true. to say that. That's definitely a 1920s. That's a gangster name. Yeah, bring back Mo's. More Mo's. Gale. More Mo's. So, yeah, these bodyguards were paid an extraordinary amount of money to keep out, you know, troublemakers. And that basically meant anyone who was drunk or not wearing a jacket and tie. Um, <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> Same difference. And the the ballroom itself, like the interior, had these mirrored walls and sprung layered flooring that mm. had to be replaced every three years because there was so much dancing. You can imagine. Yeah, wonderful. Two bandstands so that they never had to stop playing music while one band is setting up and getting ready, the other band is playing, then Genius. they can just switch over. It's like Seamless. your average festival. <laughs> yes, it Yeah, average average. Outdoor festival. <laughs> and so the Savoy was where a young Ella Fitzgerald, where she she was plucked by Chick Webb after her career launching performance at the Apollo, which was also nearby. Mm. Chick Webb pulled her up on stage and she got her big break. It also hosted regulars like Lena Horne, Billie Holiday, Frank Sinatra, and they used to hold these Battle of the Big Band competitions. <gasps> so good. One, famously, was held between Benny Goodman and Chick Webb, and another between Chick Webb and Count Bassey, featuring Count Bassey. Billie Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald. Fuck yeah. Can you imagine going to that big band competition? Chick Webb versus Count Bassey featuring Billie Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald. Maybe if you got a time machine and you could just pick like something oh. really specific, that would be like the really specific moment in time. That would be such an amazing specific moment. I want to go to the big band competition at the Savoy. <laughs> right, just memorize the date. Yeah, if yeah, anybody yeah. turns up in the DeLorean, you'll know which date yes. to put in. Well, you know where we're going. I realize that this conversation is like a particular kind of nerd sort of conversation. <laughs> like, there's probably a bunch of listeners who are like, I don't know who Chick Webb is. Just move on. <laughs> yeah, just move on from it. No, no, it's important. <laughs> and so the Savoy was known as the world's finest ballroom. And it, as, you know, I'm sure you've gathered, it was the center of Harlem nightlife and culture. And it was here that swing dancing <sighs> and specifically the Lindy Hop was born. Huzzah. So, one fateful day on Easter in 1932, young Norma, she's hanging around on the sidewalk outside the Savoy after church. How old is young Norma now? 
It's 1932, so she's like she's like 12. Okay, she's 12. Right, she's still yeah, she's still she's a kid. She's a child, yeah, literal child. And you know, <laughs> she's and it's like a picture her. She's in her Sunday best. She's just come from church. She's this skinny little girl, and she's dancing on the street. Yeah. Doing all those moves that she's been practicing with her friends at summer camp. I can see <laughs> you know, it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At school, because she also went to a performing arts school. She was. <gasps> of course she did. Of course she did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the music is coming out onto the street. She's too young to go in, though. So they're just, oh, she's hanging out with her friends, yeah. listening, having yeah. a good time. And then this man approaches her. And this man. Usually that's a bad sign. Well, it would be bad <laughs> if you weren't. Twist mouth George Ganaway, who was known to be the greatest dancer at the Savoy. Twist mouth. Twist mouth. Oh my god, what a name! They some of them had such good names. Uh, fantastic yeah. names. Twist mouth is terrific. <laughs> and he's like, "Come here, kid." And he told her she looked like a good dancer. And in her, I'm memoir, sorry, this still sounds creepy. I, I, of course. This is not oh, standing. This is a grown, this is a grown <laughs> fucking man saying, coming up to a kid. Yeah, yeah, come here, kid. You got some moves. Yep. Doesn't sound good so far, but I'm assuming it, it's okay. It's okay. It turns out all right. I'm all here right. to tell you that he's genuinely interested in her dancing and nothing more. We okay. can put all of those assumptions to rest. Some people good. are good people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sure. Twistmouth George, he's good people. Except for Twistmouth George <laughs> sounds like he would not be good people. He but, does right. sound like he might murder you in your sleep. But yeah, it sounds like he takes a lot of 12-year-old girls off the street. <laughs> oh, but no. Don't you say another bad thing about Twistmouth George Ganaway. <laughs> okay. All right. No, all right. So Twistmouth's a good guy. He's a good guy and he, he's, well, and this is in Norma's own words. She said, he was dressed in white from head to toe, suit, hat, tie and shoes. His head was cocked to his side and his face where the twist was and he had the oh. longest pair legs I had ever seen. Yeah, so, so you're actually discriminatory. He actually does have a twist. Okay, yeah. He has right. a twist mouth. Okay. He was clean from head to toe. Man, he was sharp. Okay, I like it. All right. Yeah. All right. I thought He's maybe fine. I thought maybe the twist mouth thing is somehow related to like being a dancer Big, or something. Like yeah, that. that's what I actually would have imagined. Yeah. Twist mouth. He's a good guy. He's, He's good guy. people. So he asked her to come in and dance with him as his partner for the Easter matinee. Ooh. What are you gonna do, huh? You're Norma Miller. You're 12 years old. This is your dream. You're going to say, yes, twist mouth. I shall. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. And so she did. They went in. She sat in a booth and he bought her a Coca-Cola. See, he's good people. Uh, and she watched the parade. So all the dancers enter. They're wearing their amazing, fabulous Easter costumes. They all look amazing. There's a winner who's picked from the parade. I was in New York for the Easter parade. That's Were you? Totally random. Would yes. you like to tell us an anecdote of the Easter parade? No, the Easter parade. Drunk, no, a drunk man chased me for a little oh, while no. by chased I mean just sort of just didn't, just didn't go away oh, for a no. while until I politely excused myself eventually <laughs> that was my experience at the New York Easter Parade <laughs> hooray Yay. sexual harassment great cool fun story thanks I asked <laughs> I asked I shouldn't be surprised either I'm sorry anyway, everybody yeah, good. I'm so pleased that I could share that with you <laughs> I'll tell you a nicer story of an Easter parade. So after the parade, the dancing starts, of course, and this is her time to shine. See, the MC said that old famous, because remember, Twistmouth is is a very famous man around the Savoy. Twistmouth and his mystery partner are going to take to the stage. So he took her by the hand and he led her to the dance floor. And Miller writes, as we made our first swing,
swing out, it seemed that Twistmouth just lifted me in the air. My feet felt like they never touched the floor. People roared, and at the end, we did a step called a flying jig walk. The house came down. Eee, that's great. I can imagine. Yeah. And she'd be tiny, surely. Oh, she's tiny. Yeah. Yeah. I saw, like, one picture of her as a kid, and she's just this little skinny. Yeah. Skinny kid. Her feet probably didn't touch <laughs> yeah, the ground. Probably she probably was in the air the entire time. <laughs> and so this sort of started, I guess, the beginning of her dancing career. So at school, there was, like I said, she was at this performing arts school, and there were a few other dancers that she would hang out with. And so they started going to another local ballroom called the Renaissance, because the Renaissance held Sunday matinees for young people uh-huh. so you could get in underage and so here she also met a bunch of other young dancers including a teenage Frankie Manning now I don't know this name probably doesn't mean anything to you but he's the man Norma Miller of the swing world uh, okay yeah. Frankie mm-hmm. Manning is like one of the great swing dancers of all time the one that you would see in most photos with her no, actually, her partner was Billy Rickers. So you often see her in photos with Billy, but she's always like Frankie Manning is always there as well because they're all, you know, in couples. You've got your partner, partner dance. And Frankie Manning was in a different couple, but in the same troupe. Mm-hmm. So together with some of these kids, they started attending these swing contests. And these were held among different groups from the different ballrooms around the neighborhood. And then they heard of this really big one, a new competition at the Apollo, which... New steps, new steps. What's that from? Strictly Ballroom. Of course. <laughs> of course, yes! Another great dancing film. Anyway, carry on. Oh, we should, oh, we really, I want to watch... Strictly Ballroom is one of my favourite movies. It's so good. Strictly Ballroom is about the only Baz Luhrmann film I can stand. It's the best one. Yeah, pretty much because everything else is all style and no And it's just, it's so quintessentially Australian as well, that film. It is actually a fabulous film. It's fabulous. Okay. Anyway. Anyway. (laughs) So, yeah, there's this competition at the Apollo, which is... You know, I'm sure everyone's heard of the Apollo Theatre, right? Yes. Like, it's very I'm gonna famous. Say, I'm just going to say yes. I just said yes. But <laughs> very famous theatre in New York. And the winner would get a week's of paid work. So I guess like a residency at the Apollo. Wow. And $25. That's big money. Big money in 1932. Hey, I wouldn't even turn my nose up at $25 now. <laughs> Thank you very yeah. much. And this could really kickstart your career, of course. And so she entered and her and her partner, Sonny, so this is before Billy Rickers came later in her career. Her teenage partner was Sonny. He was from, you know, they used to hang out together in the same group of dancers at the Rennie. So they won, they split their $25 prize right there on the street. And then that night she received a strange visit at her home. Uh-oh. She opened the door to find three men. And the one in the middle was, it was a bit of an intimidating gentleman. His name was Herbert White. He was known as Whitey and he was from the Savoy and he was a little bit pissed off because his troupe, the Savoy dancers, they were supposed to win (gasps) Uh the competition at the Apollo. Like he really wanted to make a splash in the swing scene Uh and he was not happy. And so he said to Norma, Norma Miller, would you come and join my troupe? Oh, that's not what I expected. I thought it was going to be like death threats and knee breaking. No, he did not. He didn't pull a Tonya Harding on That's her. what I thought was coming. <laughs> Instead, he invited her to come to the Savoy and join his little troupe of Savoy dancers. Mm. And An offer she cannot refuse. And she's 12, right? Like this is, you know, 
really Nothing exciting, exciting ever happened to me when I was 12. Me neither. No one knocked on the door and was like, hey, come join my dance troupe. <laughs> that happened later on when I was older. <laughs> Three intimidating men came and knocked on your door yeah, and so demanded that you join. No, but did yeah. you get asked to join the dance troupe? No, it was a children's entertainment troupe. It's the same thing. And they knocked on your door? No. Did, did they <laughs> headhunt you? This story is completely irrelevant. <laughs> Let's move on. But, hey, playing in a children's band that tours schools to give edutainment is just as significant and important. edutainment? Yes. Is that a real word? Is that what yes. I was doing? It's a portmanteau of education doing, yeah. and entertainment. It is indeed. It is indeed. Yes. Edutainment. Okay. You were an edutainer. I was an edutainer. In your heyday. I didn't know until this moment. <laughs> Isn't that what we're doing now? We're edutaining Aren't people. we still edutainers? Yes. Okay, good. You've made a career of it. I can't get away. Can we I can't call get... this a career? <laughs> it's not a career, but I can't get away from it. All right. Anyway, here's the thing. It's 1935. Oh, wait. Is it? Maybe she's not 12 anymore. Maybe she's a little bit. She might be 14 right now because yeah. it's 1935. Okay. But 1935 in Harlem was a pretty big year. Things were really starting to, well, get pretty shit scary. There's, to be honest, a lot of parallels between Harlem in 1935 and the world in 2020. All of our stories end up with parallels. History just repeats itself. It's almost like studying history is very important and relevant to understanding the world today. No, seriously, this is a serious story. So 12-year-old Puerto Rican teenager was accused of shoplifting some candy and he was beaten by the employees of the store. So in response to this, uh, you you beat a child, a child, a literal child. So demonstrations started in response to this, which I think is a very... That seems fairly reasonable. I would say that that's fair enough. People were angry. This is sort of, I guess it's the George Floyd incident, right? This is the one thing that's sort of the last straw Mm -hmm. because people were angry about this white takeover of Harlem. You know, so many of the Harlem businesses were now owned by white people. You know, people had been forced out of their jobs And so these demonstrations quickly sort of escalated as this anger at a lot of racism and racially kind of fueled prejudice bubbled over. And so white owned businesses became the targets of looting and destruction and the first Harlem riots Mm. began. Mm -hmm. And so this is sort of seen as the end of the Harlem Renaissance, basically. Mm. And this was not the first set of Harlem riots. There was more in the 40s and has been more since, but this was actually known as the first modern race riots. Mm -hmm. So I guess race riots in the way that we understand them today is coming from that place of anger at racial prejudice and systematic oppression and systematic violence and things like that. So in total, three people died. Hundreds were wounded and there was an estimated $2 million in property damage. Mm. But the Savoy, as I said, this was famously integrated with a huge number of black employees. And so while it did take a little bit of damage, it was not the target of the destruction in the same way that a lot of other places were. And so it remained relatively safe. However, the Savoy owner, Olmo, 
Hey. Together with his manager, Charlie Buchanan, and Whitey, they decided that something needed to be done to raise public morale after the riots. So they decided to host a dance competition. And this dance competition would be like the Olympics of dance. It would be held across the five boroughs of New York, and it would be open to five kinds of dance. There would be foxtrot, tango, waltz, rumba, and Lindy Hop. Ayy. And I don't know if you know much about Lindy Hop. Only the shit amount that I was never very good at. <laughs> but it's not really like the, I mean, it's kind of like those other dancers, but those are ballroom dancers. Mm. And ballroom dancers have always been judged in very particular ways. And they're judged according to very particular criteria. The way that, you know, the dancers move, the elegance of the dancers, the particular maneuvers that they make whereas Lindy this is new like this was Mm. so different from everything that had ever come before and it's a dance that relies so much on improvisation and things Mm. like this so this was like blowing the doors off the system man so okay (laughs) sticking it to the man so Lindy Hop this is a specific kind of swing dancing. So there are a few different genres within the swing category. We've, there's Lindy, but there's also things like Shag, there's Balboa, there's others, but I won't complicate things. And so this came out of the Savoy in the late 1920s, 1928 specifically, and it developed through the 30s. And it was named for Charles Lindbergh's famous flight. So, you know, Charles oh, Lindbergh, okay. he flew across the Atlantic from Paris to New York. Oh, that makes sense. I see that. So they called it the Lindy Hop. Because yeah. hopped. hopped. Yeah. Lindy hopped over the Atlantic. And that also, that idea, because there were elements of the dance that had already been called hop, like a hop move mm. and so that's sort of where they came together and it came out of elements of the Charleston the Foxtrot and this particular other kind of move called the Texas Tommy among others but really Lindy Hop itself came about sort of by accident when George Shorty Snowden otherwise known as Shorty George and there's a dance move so called the Shorty George so within good. Lindy by the way also he claims uh, that one day he got bored with dancing the same old steps so he cut in a breakaway <gasps> new steps new steps yes literally oh, new sorry. steps who's going to do this the whole episode and that's what people around him did they were watching and they were like whoa new steps new steps and it caught on and then the Lindy was born this is the legend all right because no one actually really is able to completely pinpoint exactly when uh, the Lindy started. Who needs to know? that it came out of the Savoy in the late 1920s, yeah. but this is a legend. Legend's good enough. Yeah. And so Lindy, it's a six or eight count dance, which fits perfectly with jazz's four measure phases. Mm-hmm. And it makes use of a repetition of basic patterns. So like I said, it's a partnered dance where you've got a leader and a follower. And there's these basic patterns that are executed in different ways each time. And so it lends itself very well to improvisation. And there's a lot of complexity that you can add into it that really sets it apart from other dancers like the Foxtrot. Um, and in her memoir, Miller calls the Lindy Hop, America's only dance, and we created it. Ah. And it very quickly sort of took over the world. So Whitey, he he was very, very serious about Lindy Hop. He was basically a producer and a manager, and he wanted to be the king of swing. He wanted to... Because it rhyme. <laughs> exactly. He basically wanted to beat out Shorty George oh, okay. as yep. the top guy. He wanted to get Shorty. Yes. How many movie references can I do in this episode today? 
I'll keep at it. But he was worried that because it was such an unconventional dance, the Lindy Hop wouldn't be taken very seriously at the new competition or really be understood by the judges. But he knew that even though they couldn't win all the other categories, the Savoy dancers, they had the Lindy in the bag. This was their dance. And so this would become the platform through which they would spread the Lindy Mm -hmm. to the world. And so now she's on board. Norma's one of Whitey's dancers. Yes. And the Savoy Lindy Hoppers, they dedicated themselves to practicing for the Harvest Moon Ball, which is what this... Harvest Moon! I know! It's a really cute name. Harvest Moon. (laughs) Not a farming sim. Now, Miller was nervous because, of course, as I said, they had no idea how the Lindy was going to be received by judges. Very serious ballroom judges. And this is a very different kind of dance. Miller writes about how the Savoy, which already looked like a palace, was even more transformed for the competition. She said everyone was radiant. And so when it was time for the Lindy Hop, and by the way, imagine like you've had all of the other competitors and they're in their waltzing gowns Mm -hmm. and their tuxedos, Mm -hmm. in their tango dresses, and then here in come the Lindy Hoppers. And Lindy Hop is not a dance that you do in In a a gown. No, you're not. So already there's this, you know, imagine this little clutch of these kids. They were kids. Yeah coming into this fucking grand Savoy ballroom Mm -hmm. surrounded by all these people in their tuxedos and their gowns and they're going to wow the pants off of them with this new dance, this new dance for the kids. But it's going to be what when they're done, there'll be like that moment of tense silence Yeah, and then the slow clap. And then (laughs) that what happens. Let's imagine that it okay. is. Okay. Well, when it was time for the Lindy Hop, apparently the crowd roared. Like they Yay. lost it. They were so excited. So that because wasn't even the moment of tense it silence wasn't, and a slow it wasn't, No, because this is their hometown okay. dance. Right, like right. Because also I should say that this is like one of the semi-final competitions. So I said there was competitions right. in all the five okay, boroughs. Yeah. And so the, it's already been out there a little bit. In a way. Yeah, yeah, and this is the competition that's being held at the Savoy. So there yeah. were other competitions held in other ballrooms across New York as well. And so maybe in those other ballrooms it wouldn't have been received Quite the same as, way, yeah. perhaps. Mm-hmm. Now, Chick Webb and his orchestra, they led the dance and the teams competed four at a time. So unlike dancers like the Waltz, where couples dance one at a time and were judged on their precision, their grace, their clean lines, the Lindy was all really about getting the judge's attention mm-hmm. because there's not that same judging criteria. So you just want to do the most far out, yeah. insane thing that you can. Look at me. Yes. And Lindy competitions are still kind of like mm. watching people dancing Lindy in competition. It it's really is terrific. It's amazing. Yeah, Yeah. there's so much on YouTube, including this competition. Uh, Well, the grand final of the Lindy Hop at the 1935 Harvest Moon Ballroom. Seriously? Yes. Oh, my God. Wow. Yes. I will show you after. (gasps) And I will link link it in the show notes. Oh, my God. Because everybody should watch it. Because especially, no, I won't give spoilers. There's something happening that's coming. Okay, so Miller writes, the first swing out was like madness. It was every man for himself. And so, of course, the Savoy Lindy Hoppers placed very well and they went through to the grand finals at, drumroll please, 
Madison Square Garden, which was not called that then, but it doesn't matter. (laughs) And the press were all over the story. You know, they were hometown heroes. It was going to be amazing. So particularly like Miller, she actually, there had been this kind of confusion because the grand final was supposed to be held somewhere else. They all got there and then for some reason it got canceled. So Miller went to summer camp. She was like, oh, at camp. Like they thought that the competition was off. And then she got a newspaper and she read in the newspaper the announcement of this Harvest Moon ball grand finale at Madison Square Garden and the writer had written specifically that people needed to go to see Norma Miller dance because she she was amazing. And she didn't even know she was going to, oh my god. she didn't even know. And so she had to call her mom and be like, mom, you have to come and pick me up from camp because I have to get to Madison Square Garden for the Harvest Moon ball finale. This is amazing. This sounds like this is a movie script. It is a movie. Actually, it, what it is is it's the story of Fire Saga. That's exactly what this story <laughs> yeah, is. That's so good. It's so good. It's, it actually it's pretty is. much what's yeah. happening right now. <laughs> and so anyway, so she rushed home. She went to the ball and she danced her little heart out. So she danced with her partner, Billy Rickers. But sadly, they were not among the top three teams. Oh, and I will no. tell you why. And this is something that you can see if you watch the footage. Oh, no. It's very grainy and it's a little bit like jittery and you can't quite make it out. But her blouse comes open as she's oh, dancing. No. Oh, no. Yeah, you see like this fraction of, I think, because Norma Miller herself, she said you can see it in the video when her blouse comes open. So I was watching this video and then I was like, oh, fuck, I think that was it. Like, I think I saw it. Like I said, it's sort of, it all happens very quickly, Mm. but yeah, I'm pretty sure that yes, you can indeed see her blouse open during the grand finale. So she didn't place, but she, (laughs) she exposed herself. She did accidentally. It's a rough and tumble dance, Alicia. Either way, this was the beginning of Whitey's Lindy Hoppers, which was the Savoy troupe of dancers. This was the official launch of their careers. Got it. Okay, so after staking their claim over New York with their outstanding Harvest Moon Ball appearance. And their titties. And titties. Mm-hmm. Which is, look, if it's not going to place Accid- you, it's going to get you remembered. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, accidental titties will get you remembered. Whitey knew what was next. Uh, the Lindy Hoppers needed to take on the world. Hey. And so after kind of tricking her mother into giving her permission, the 15-year-old Norma left for a seven... Is that very like Sister Act 2? Is that very like... Does she trick her mother or does she just... Does she just go? She She just goes. She writes her mom a note that's that's basically just like, Mom, I've got to do this. Yeah, that's the kind of parent I hope to be. (laughs) I want to be the parent that, like, tells you you can't do things. And then they do it to spite you. Just to give them motivation because I feel like if I'm too supportive and I'm like, you can do anything, then my child will be lazy and complacent and not do anything. Whereas if I'm like, no child of mine's going to be a dancer, <laughs> but then, then they'll be like, I'm going to dance. You're like watching, you're, you're like her mum and sneak into the theatre yeah. halfway through and then and I sit do down the, and, and I do look, the slow clap. look on really proudly and exactly. cry. And then at the end I'm like, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I'm like, your father would have been so proud. It's <laughs> like, what happened to your father? I don't know, he died dancing, which is why I hate dancing or something like that. <laughs> that's the story. Yeah, that's the story. So oh. what killed your father, which is why I didn't want you to do it. Yeah. But now I see that it was in your blood all along. Yes. Good. The Alicia saga. Carry on. Okay, so 15-year-old Norma tricks her mum into allowing her to go to Europe for seven months. And so they even danced on the ship 
How do you trick someone into letting you go to because, Europe for seven months? Okay, so That's what a big trick. She got home and she was like, okay, oh shit, I'm going to have to tell my mum. I want to go to Europe and I'm 15. She's like, not going to let me because I have to go to school. But she like got home really late and her mum heard her come in and was like, oh, Norma, can you finish doing that washing that's in the sink for me for the morning? And it's like midnight. So, you know, Norma's like, oh, ha, 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 sure. I'll do it if you let me go to Europe. And then her mom's like, ha, ha, lol. Okay, you do the washing. I'll let you go to Europe. Lol, 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 lol. And then little did she know that Norma indeed did do the washing. And so then she was like, okay, well, I'm off. That would not hold. <laughs> oh, that would not hold. You'd be like, no, I'm sorry. Just because you wash the dishes. No, no, this agreement does no. That agreement is well, apparently agreement. she was a, Alma was a woman of her word and she let her go to Europe. Oh, well, <laughs> this is, again, this is the story that she tells in her memoir. I love so a good story. It's a good story. Why, Why ruin, ruin a story, story with the truth? <laughs> the truth? Yeah. And so yeah, they even danced on the ship on the way over, which I can only imagine how difficult that would be <laughs> on a moving on a ship doing the Lindy Hop. And it made even worse by the fact that the ship band were like this four-piece British group, and it's like Fantastic. mid, you know, mid nineteen thirties. So they have no fucking idea how to. They don't know how to play swing. No. And this is, <laughs> she said. Norma said that the music was appalling Aww. because they got no swing. Oh, well. No, but like genuinely, like swing music, it swings. Mm, like that mm. is, you know what I mean when I say that it swings, That's the right? Point. Like yeah. it's got this syncopated rhythm, rhythm. Mm. Um, that you need to dance, and they just couldn't do it. And so they were giving these exhibition dances on this ship, mm. and then everyone's just politely like, "Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know." And Miller writes that she didn't. Really realize how important the music was because mm. she'd been fucking spoiled yeah let's be honest absolutely at the Savoy like she grew up in the heart mm. of jazz music in New York and so she didn't really realize how important the music was to good dancing um she writes dancing Lindy Hop is a very emotional thing and a good swinging drummer could make you sail through a routine you never got tired because everything was in sync but this this was a dance trial mm. So the tour wasn't quite what she wanted it to be. London audiences were pretty cold, especially compared to their American counterparts. And she couldn't tell if their polite applause was polite because they were British or polite because they were just like, eh, mm. you know. And they sort of shocked the, you know, upper class patrons of some of the London ballrooms. Again, these people in their fancy dresses and their tuxedos. But eventually she did write that, you know, some of them got into the swing of things eh, eh. and it was pretty funny to see ladies swinging out in their ball gowns. Nice. She had a better time in Paris though where they had a I much... I could imagine. Well, this is actually, they genuinely had a much bigger black community and they also had this little hub. So they played at like La Balle Negra, which is a West Indian cabaret in Paris where Josephine Baker also performed. Oh. So there is this culture in Paris that existed that I guess reflected a lot of the same sort of stuff that was happening in New York, which mm. was not really happening in London at that time yeah. yet. So they had a much better time in Paris. So when they got back to New York, Shorty George, you know, remember old Shorty. How could I forget? Sure, of, course I, of course I remember him. He challenged Whitey's Lindy Hoppers to a contest. There were just so many swing contests, honestly. There needs to be more. I'll bring them back. <laughs> well, there are... But I, mean, but I mean, like, on the streets, happen. like, on the streets, just, like, challenging people to swing dances, like, walking down the street. <laughs> there are actually in Adelaide, there are swing. There's a few, not competitions, but there are events where they move from one 
place to another and swing dance on the streets as they go. I think these days you look like a bunch of nerds. Yeah. <laughs> like, let's be honest. pretentious. A but, bunch of white people but it dress also, like it's the 50s. Yeah, no, see, in, the in my mind... It's quite the same thing. In my mind, it needs to be more like West Side Story type gangs. Yeah. Look, though, to be honest... Gangs. We have done that from time to time as we walk from the hall where we do our swinging competitions to the pub where we go for a drink afterwards, doing but a bit of the... Gangs. But not with, gangs. It's just one with, gang on no, just I'm, us I mean, like, flick knives and shit. No, we do need a rival swing community to meet with in North Adelaide. Anyway, okay, so there's this other contest. Shorty George v Whitey's Lindy Hoppers. Do-do-do-do-do. Yeah, yeah I'm just it. gonna keep doing this in the background. And this is actually a really important <laughs> one because to get a leg up <laughs> on Shorty George and his partner Big Bay, Frankie Big Manning. Bay? Yes. <laughs> I fucking love it. Frankie Manning and his partner Frida. Now they decided they were gonna try something new. Okay? Because remember, Shorty George, he's the guy. He is the swing guy. So they really need to bring it to be. Shorty. And so Frankie Manning, he lifted Frida all the way over his back so that she would roll over in time with the music. And so the aerial move was born. born. Now, aerials changed swing. This was a pretty major change. And they kept adding more aerial moves. But aerials are very rare, let's say, in swing. Like they're like top tier dances <laughs> I can't imagine can you, you don't imagine? want to be doing that so this competition happened it went well Ariel is born is my point the end meanwhile they were instructed to teach a new swinger the ropes one Miss Ethel Waters hey now, Ethel Waters if she's you, a household name surely I mean no hang on let's not make assumptions she was a household name in the 1930s absolutely like she was one of the most famous jazz singers of her time, hugely successful. And actually Miller said that she was the most beautiful woman that she'd ever seen. And like she was a diva, you know, she was a proper star. So she came to the Savoy to learn to dance because she wanted to add the Lindy to her show. Mm -hmm. And so soon with their new moves up their sleeve, Miller and Whitey's Lindy Hoppers were on tour with Miss Waters. Awesome. But things grew tense between Whitey and Waters. You see, Waters, she would shower the girls with gifts like coats, and Whitey was a bit worried that she was going to steal them away. Plus, according to Miller, Waters was a bit of a diva. She was very temperamental and prone to snapping. And so one morning, a fight about cornflakes revealed (laughs) that Whitey had been underpaying the Lindy Hoppers, and there was a big difference between what Ethel Waters was paying Whitey this is what Whitey was allowing to trickle down to the troop. Mm-hmm. And Waters was not happy to discover it. Meanwhile, though, so this is just like tensions are starting, okay? Because this is important for Norma yep. coming up. Scene setting. Now, in LA, Norma Miller, she met the Marx Brothers. How uh, get to LA? We're on tour. Oh, they're we're on, on tour, tour with Ethel Waters. Okay. So, yes, she's on tour mm-hmm. with Ethel Waters. She meets the Marx Brothers, which oh, led yeah. to the As now... 18-year-old making her film debut in A Day at the Races. Oh, seriously? Yes. Wow. So there's a famous sequence in A Day at the Races, and again, you can find this on YouTube, called All God's Children Got Rhythm. 
And this is where you can see all of Whitey's Lindy Hoppers performing Lindy Hop in the film. It's great. And yeah, again, you can watch it for free on YouTube. I'll link it in the show notes. And this performance went on to get an Academy Award nomination for Best Choreography. Ooh, very nice. But her time in L.A. exhausted her. So Norma, I mean, she's just turned 18 and Whitey's schedule was demanding. When she got back to New York, she weighed just 87 pounds, which is 39 (gasps) kilograms. That's nothing. That's skin and bone. No. That's nothing. So she was exhausted and her mother had her hospitalized so that she could recover. Understandably. So she's killing herself on tour. And so she she spent a few months recovering, obviously, but then she was pretty keen to get back to it because money's tight. <laughs> she didn't really, you know, mm. this is what she does. This is what she loves. Yeah. And so she got a job exhibiting Lindy at the World's Fair in New York. Hey. Now, the Savoy was going to have its own pavilion and they would teach Lindy Hop. They would share the roots of jazz music, the roots of swing, and sort of teach the history along with the dance itself. But again, the work schedule was brutal. So the show started every hour on the hour Mm. from noon until six. Mm. And then the night shows started from seven until midnight on weeknights till 2 a.m. on weekends. And there were just two rotating sets of dancers. Jeez, no thank you. And so, yeah, I know. And she's literally just come out of hospital from exhaustion and being underweight, I guess. Mm. So she's literally just recovered and she's stepping straight into this. And this was hard and she knew how hard it was on her body, but she didn't stop. Like she just went with it. So the World's Fair opened even more opportunities for her. So she ended up doing Broadway shows. She was in A Midsummer Night's Dream. And then she was in a Broadway show called Hell's a Poppin'. And that's going to come up again in a moment. So in 1940, she competed in another Harvest Moon Ball, but it was tense. So Whitey, he didn't want the same dancers dancing again because they'd already appeared. But Miller wasn't having it. She's like, she's earned her place. She deserved to be there. She deserved to be representing the Savoy. And this time she'll keep her shirt closed. Yes, that's right. Thank you very much. (laughs) She's got pins. (laughs) Plus the... Whitey had got in what she calls these third-rate dancers who were just sort of copying all of their moves, you know, like the old-school dancers like Norma Miller and Frankie. And so she hated to see that her routines were being stolen and then done poorly by these other people. Plus, Whitey was getting really greedy and there had been rumours in the press about how he treated his dancers, including beating them. And Miller was really starting to lose her patience and her respect for him. But she competed anyway. The Harvest Moon Ball was hosted by Ed Sullivan and the winners would get to perform on his show, Toast of the Town, which later became the Ed Sullivan Show. And she and Billy Rickers, they placed third and they got to star in Toast of the Town. That's good. And so then in 1941, she and the Lindy Hoppers starred in what would go on to become not only their most famous dance sequence, but perhaps one of the most famous Lindy Hop sequences ever filmed in the film version of Hell's a Poppin'. And now this is an extraordinary, extraordinary piece. And I remember seeing it a couple of years ago when we first started dancing because my swing school, they're actually really great at 
history mm. stuff. So they post historical stuff all the time and they posted this video from Hell's a Poppin and I remember watching it in bed like with Brendan and just my eyes fucking Poppin'. boggle. Yes, they <laughs> pop. I was like, the fuck, these people are flying. Mm. Like, mm-hmm. and Brendan was like, they've sped that up. Like, that can't be real. Yeah. They have to have sped up this film. But of course they haven't. Mm. Like, they're just that good. Like, and again, it's on YouTube. If you're going to watch any of the videos that I've recommended <laughs> today, you have to watch Hell's a Poppin'. And if you do, Norma is the one in a chef's hat and she's dancing with Billy Rickers. And, of course, Frankie Manning is also in the video. And it's great. It's really, really, really good. So during filming, she also, because this was in L.A., she met a man... She met 29-year-old Roy Glenn. He was also working on Hells of Poppin'. And the two had a little bit of a whirlwind romance. And it was her first romance, you know. She'd been... So she hasn't had any romances no. with Billy or any of her partners? No, no, mm-hmm. not at all. She was too busy for love. Yeah. And she, for some reason, I guess, wasn't really interested in the Lindy boys. For some reason. I don't know why. But anyway. So this is her first love. But, of course, they were only in L.A. for a short amount of time. Oh, heartbreaking. So it couldn't be. And they had to leave each other because White informed them all that in just two weeks they were heading for Rio. As you do. That seems like the next logical stop along the way. Of course. We've got to go to Brazil. But she was getting, again, pretty tired of Whitey's shit. And so he had... Once again, lowballed them on their pay for Hell's a Poppin'. And now he just dropped these Rio shows on them with like no warning. And so she told Whitey, like, no, I'm not going. I don't want to go. I'm going to stay in LA with Roy. I found love, man. Yeah. But Whitey, apparently, according to, you know, again, the memoir, he scooted close to her across the table where they were sitting and he told her, Norma, you're better than that. Men aren't for you. Oh. Don't get involved with them. And he warned her that she'd be throwing away her career for some man if she didn't go with him to Rio. Now, look, this is a tough one. It is. (laughs) Because love is love, but also don't throw away your career. (laughs) But also Whitey was exploiting her. Yeah, and manipulating her entirely. Yeah, Yeah. and so it is totally a hard thing. I absolutely agree that... She was, I think, right to put her career first. I wish that she could have put her career first without... I wish she could have branched out on her own a little bit more. And she did eventually. But first she was going to Rio. And so she actually loved Rio. Like, it was great. She found it really beautiful. She loved the music. The music was excellent. The people were friendly. And they were very well received there. But just a week after they arrived in Rio, and this they arrived in December 1941... Oi. Yeah, that oi, that's a, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you remember what happened in December 1941, Alicia, what happened in December 1941? Well, the war. Yes, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. That's yeah. <laughs> and the Americans joined, joined the, the war. war. Exactly. And so this meant that they basically got stuck in Rio. They couldn't get home because the war had obviously, much like COVID, Shut down the world. (laughs) More familiarity. (laughs) Yes. And so she ended up stranded in Brazil for 10 months. Whoa. Yeah. And 
I say stranded, but it sounds like they actually had a pretty good time. She, <laughs> you're going to get stranded anywhere. I mean, exactly. If you're going to be stranded anywhere, actually, not no, ter- wait, no. Not, you don't want to be stranded in Brazil now. Like not right now. Not right now. That would be a terrible place to be stranded <laughs> no. right now with a fuckhead <laughs> for a president. Yeah. Oh, well, there's some fuckhead presidents going around at the there's moment. There's a few. There's a few. But Mila got to Samba. She learned all about that, which she really enjoyed. But it did cost her basically all of her money. So she was pretty broke when she got back to New York finally in 1942. And so she was kind of forced to join the Lindy Hoppers on one last tour with Cootie Williams and Pearl Bailey. No. No? Okay. She's another jazz singer. Okay. Okay. Yeah. There's actually a really great Ella Fitzgerald song that I love called Bill Bailey. And that's about Bill and Pearl. Not about Bill and Pearl, but she mentions Pearl Pearl Bailey. Bailey. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, she's joined... Pearl Bailey on tour, but again, tensions with Whitey are getting even worse. He was still underpaying them, and Miller was fucking done. And also, by now, she's in her, oh, actually, she's probably only about 20. Mm, um, Jesus. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so she was just like, nah, fuck this. I guess she knew that she was talented enough, and she knew that she had what it took to make it on her own. And so she quit Finally! She finally quit in 1942. Besides, at the same time, I guess, you know, she probably saw the writing on the wall Mm. because of the fact that America had joined the war, which meant that all the men in the troop, they were drafted. Mm. And so they all, like Frankie Manning went off to war. And so it was pretty much the death knell for the Lindy Hoppers anyway, but I'm glad that she just got her little stab in mm. there and was like, no, Whitey, fuck you, I'm, I'm out. out. Yeah. I'm out. Even though I know that this is all ending anyway, I can see. I still I did it first. I did it. Yeah, I'm out. I did it. I did it. Quick. And so she wanted to explore. She wanted to learn new dance styles. She loved Lindy, but she didn't want to be pigeonholed. So she enrolled in a dance school, the New Dance Group. So do you know of the New Dance Group? This was where she learned the Graham technique. So the Graham technique is a modern dance style, which is again, been hugely influential in contemporary dance. And it uses the opposition between contraction and release. And it's sort of based on the breathing cycle. So it's very different to Lindy. Like Lindy's a very fast, very improvised sort of dance. This is much more of that. If you think of your mental image of, Contemporary dancing. Ah, okay. This is sort of Uh what we're talking about with the Graham technique. And so to support herself while she studied, she started working as a producer for Small's Paradise, which was a club in Harlem. And afterwards, she got work dancing in shows across the country. She toured across the US and Canada on her own name. And then she ended up back in LA and she hooked up with Roy. Yes. (laughs) So... Things weren't, like, quite as spicy as they had been in, you know, 1941. Exactly. Well, actually, 1946, he landed a role in Broadway in Ala La Casta. And so the two moved from L.A. back to New York. Mm. And at the same time, Miller was landing plenty of work producing shows on her own. And so Roy was busy with his acting career. She's busy with her producing and her dancing. And things started to sour. They both took their careers very seriously. And so they decided to kind of just like call. Mm. Let's call the whole thing off. That's what they said to each other. Yeah. Oh, wow. And in her memoir. Look, their first loves were their art. Well, it was, yes. 
They're essentially. First, exactly. And that was for Norma Miller her whole life. Like, he was the only relationship that she really had. Oh, wow. Yeah. And this, remember, she's in her early 20s. Yeah. When they broke up. And in her memoir, she wrote, maybe I liked my independent, spontaneous life too much. I don't recall making a big decision to stay single. I just did. Mm -hmm. So I think she just put her career first. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. In 1952, she founded and choreographed the Norma Miller Dancers, which was a jazz dance troupe. And with them, she got to tour not only the US, but Australia. Oh, So she brought the Norma Miller Dancers to Australia. And then the Norma Miller Dancers took up long engagements in Miami Beach and Las Vegas as a part of a production called Cotton Club Review. Now, the show Mm -hmm. starred Cap Calloway and a 48-member all-black cast, but Miami, 1950s, not quite what, I guess, New York was in Mm, the 1950s. Very different. Yeah. Yeah. And she was quite shocked at the level of segregation that still existed because she wasn't really used to that being in Harlem and she felt like she'd already broken so many barriers and now she had to break them all all over again so like her dance troupe they were the first all-black show to play at the Beach Coma which was a big place in Miami but at night they had to return to their own segregated hotel they were issued identity cards by the police Mm. and you know things like having to travel separately on the bus, not being able to dine in the same room, you know, out for dinner. And she's used to being a headliner, Yeah, you know, and so this was really shocking for her. You know, so she was pretty desperate to return back to New York, but when she got back there in 1958, she found that a totally different place again. Mm -hmm. So the Savoy had closed its doors, as did a slew of other clubs. The old artists were leaving and instead... All of these new people were moving in and a lot of these new people brought with them a lot of like drugs. So that trade was coming in. It was becoming a very dangerous neighborhood. And so while New York and obviously like especially Harlem had always been home, she felt like it was time to leave. So in the 1950s, she also made a little bit of a switch in her career. I think probably realizing she's can't dance forever. She's getting on a bit. I mean, she would have been in her mid-30s. But (laughs) she decided... Pish posh! She knew her body couldn't take it forever. And she decided to take up a career in comedy. What? Yes. (laughs) Okay. She became a stand-up comedian. And she was encouraged... By Sammy Davis Jr. What? And um, Red Fox, who I don't actually um, know Red Fox, but apparently he was quite a big deal. What the hell? I know. That is so left What field. a 180. Yeah, okay. so she was. She then had this huge career as a comedian. As a stand-up comedian. She moved to Las Vegas, where she worked, through, all the way through the 60s and 70s as a comedian. And so there she is, like I said, she was performing with, like, Sammy Davis Jr. and Red Fox. She even took her comedy routine to Vietnam to entertain the troops. Yikes. Yes. (laughs) So she was obviously doing pretty well at the comedy thing. Oh, my God. And at the same time, she was still acting as a producer as well. So she was producing shows at the same time. And then in the 1980s, the swing revival happened, which was this renewed interest in swing music and swing dancing. And so she started teaching again. And she's in her 70s. Can I just ask, just go back to the stand-up comedy thing. (laughs) At 
no point so far in her biography have we mentioned any hint of her being comedic. Uh, no. I mean, I don't know. Maybe she was very funny. <laughs> and I guess the thing as well is that she's like really got into her comedy career quite late in life. Mm. You know, she was a black female comedian in the 70s. Mm. As an older woman as well. Yeah. You know, yeah, like yeah. that's groundbreaking in a number of fronts. And again, you can find some YouTube if you want to have a look and see whether she's as funny as she is a good dancer. <laughs> I get the impression that she, like they had a, a lot of fun in the Lindy Hop. Like she yeah. writes about them kind of like mucking around a lot. Like I imagine they had a very jovial and very like, you know. Energetic. Playful, and, energetic yeah. vibe. Mm hanging out with the Lindy Hoppers all of that time. So I'm not surprised that that's where she would sort of end up, yeah. actually. But, yeah, I mean, in her memoir, she doesn't really write that much about her own hmm. comedy stylings, I suppose. So, it's so yeah, interesting. it's funny. Yeah. All right, so now she's teaching. She's gone back to teaching. She's in her 70s, did you say? Yeah. Fuck. Yeah, Fuck. yeah, this is in the 80s when the swing revival happened. And so, yeah, she took up swing teaching she even taught at the herring dance camp which is the largest annual swing camp in the world and it's held in sweden every year and she taught there in 2018 when she was 98 years what the fuck 98 years old love that shit she fucking went to sweden she called the dance camp Brigadoon, like, you know, the Scottish, <laughs> yeah. magical Scottish village that, you know, this, that arrives every hundred years. She thought it was amazing. Like, she was so genuinely, I think, surprised and heartwarmed that swing dancing had found its way. She was like, mm. in fucking Sweden? Like, mm. <laughs> you know, like, she was really shocked i think she thought it was really lovely that swing had found its way all the way to sweden yeah as far yeah. as she was concerned like it's in fucking sweden yeah in Impress- 2018 impressive stuff yeah and so she was i think just delighted that swing dancing had actually taken over the world i'd be and delighted to be alive at 98 uh, yeah well <laughs> she did actually this was her last swing camp mm. because norma miller did pass she died of congestive heart failure at the age of 99. So that was just like last year? Yes. Is that what we're it talking? It was last year. Oh, my she God. She died last year. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's the story of Norma Miller. Impressive. Which I focused mostly on pretty much the first 20 years of her life, but that's because that's when the all the exciting stuff happened. You know, after that, it's just... Yeah, look, and more of the same. <laughs> speaking from experience, you know, that is when most of the exciting stuff happens, and then it's just downhill from there. No, oh, no, no. Oh, that was terrific. There were some twists and turns in that tale that I did not see coming. Stand up comedy. <laughs> Didn't see that coming, not from a mile away. I think she's really funny. I think she's great. Like, I think Norma Miller is just amazing. And I truly do, can't recommend highly enough that you go and watch those YouTube. Just type in Norma Miller in YouTube and you'll find her. She's so good. She's so good, Alicia. Thank you. Thank you for bringing her story to us. And thank you for bringing her story to the masses. Yeah, well. To the masses. My my pleasure. Podcast I wanted to do something fun because we've had a couple of serious episodes, you know. Like we've had a couple of activists and they're important, but I wanted a lighter story. I wanted something with a lot of energy and fun. 
Well, that's not to say she didn't have her dark moments of as well. Course, and not to say course. that she didn't come up against so much of the same sort yeah. of stuff that we've seen so many well, of our figures come up against. Like recently. I said, I feel like she was a really good story to come after someone like Ida B. Wells because the world that Ida sort of helped set up and that idea of the middle class that Ida was so much saw herself as being a part of this new black middle class, this intellectual black community. I feel like no, that's the world that Norma then stepped into. Moves into, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, the Harlem Renaissance, like I said, gave the world, particularly the West, I should say, specifically, so much, so much that came out of that little bubble mm. in New York. I mean, really. Yeah. But it is interesting, isn't it, how many, like, how much culture, how much not just sort of popular culture, but how much culture in general comes out of little bubbles. Like that's mm, exactly what, mm. you know, those groups of small people coming up with these new ideas, these new ways of thinking, these new, new ways of performing, new art, all of this kind of stuff, and then it just spreads out from there. Yeah, it is a, it is a fascinating kind of way of thinking about how I guess sometimes we get stuck in this kind of idea of, you know, one person can't make a difference or, you know, what can one person do? But... It does kind of give you that idea of how things build and build and build and build and then mm. grow and then eventually you've made a movement. Like, yeah, absolutely. that's exactly what it is. Yeah. So. And even something that seems kind of flippant like swing dancing, the fact that that has these ripples out mm. into other areas and, and that it is something that's still done today. And it's really important to acknowledge that swing dancing has a black history. Mm. Mm. You know, that that is where it comes from. It comes from the Savoy ballroom it comes from harlem yeah it comes from shorty george and norma miller and frankie manning and Mm. all of these people who were there inventing it yeah you know and that's super important to acknowledge yeah i I love it and because of also because of the movement of music that it's tied up to as well exactly yeah yeah well what a fascinating period in history put those dates in your delorean because (laughs) they're going back to that time. To the Savoy. But I have no idea where we're going to go next time. Well, it'll be a fun surprise. Uh, and, of course, in the meantime, this episode did have a lot of callbacks to some past episodes, mm. um, many from this season, actually, that tap into that yeah. um, world so and that time. you should go and check out Bessie Smith if you liked this. We've also got the... Patreon episode on the latest snow that fits in. You could go all the way back to season one and you could listen to Josephine Baker because I think she's a pretty good compliment to this episode too. You definitely could. It's funny though, isn't it, listening to that first series? Oh, yeah. yeah. Actually, well, this actually, episode yeah. might sound like that because this is the first time we've recorded in person since. And uh, let's be honest, we're missing some equipment. Yeah, someone forgot to bring it with them. Mm, me, mainly me. To bring a vital piece of recording <laughs> equipment with them to the recording session. Someone just forgot to bring a microphone, <laughs> which is essential to recording a podcast. And I know that doesn't make me sound very professional, but hey, fuck it. You've listened to it anyway, haven't you? <laughs> haven't you? But next time around, it will be yeah. better quality because I'll remember the microphone. In the meantime, we also have some brand new Patreon content. Woohoo! <laughs> this is a fun one. We have Mary of Egypt, a saint who went on an anti pilgrimage because she had an insatiable lust. Insatiable lust. Insatiable lust. So good. So you can join us on Patreon to hear that and many other episodes for as little as $2 a month. That's Bargain. Nothing. That's nothing. Bargain. You wouldn't get anything else as cheap as that in a month. No. Chips, chips, 
Anyway. It's cheaper than chips. And, of course, look, if you're in Australia, mm. we can post you merchandise yes. at the moment, which you can buy on Etsy. <laughs> if you're in any other part of the world, never fear. Sometime in the future we will also be able to post yes. <laughs> to you again. But do have a little look there if you want to get yourself a T-shirt or an enamel pin. That's right. And, of course, if you can't afford to financially support us, we completely understand it's hard times, but you can leave us a review. We love those five stars if you've got it in you to give us one of those thank you we would appreciate that very much and as always we have to say a very big thank you to brendan davies for the sound to india hui for the music and to dan our executive producer and we will see you back here in this very spot with an extra piece of equipment next with two microphones (laughs) because someone will remember it next time in a fortnight in two weeks time we'll see you then stay safe and that's it from us a goodbye. Bye.